0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome to Healthcare Insight. You're listening to America's Web Radio, and my name is Ron Bachman. Now, I know the title of this segment, this podcast, this radio program is Healthcare Insight. But in the last few weeks, we've kind of changed direction a little bit. Instead of talking about healthcare, which there's not a lot going on right now directly with health care. We've got an impasse on trying to establish free market solutions under the Biden administration, which is moving more and more towards socialism and big government and the expansion of the Affordable Care Act, if not moving towards a single payer system. I want to step back in this podcast and talk about the free market, the structure of our government, our clash of ideologies that's going on, And I wanted to talk about the shift that's going on in the public perception of what government can and cannot do, because we seem to be focusing more and more on the government is the solution and moving away from the individual ought to be responsible and take some personal responsibility for their own life and their own actions and live by the consequences of that. Our meritocracy is being replaced by a dependentocracy, if you will. We're Shifting this public opinion because we are hearing more and more every day through the media, through social media, through the mainstream media, uh, TV and every way that we we get these messages that government is the solution, that socialism is okay. as we move in that direction. It wasn't long ago that President Trump gave a State of the Union speech and said, we're not going to go under socialism in his watch. Well, he's not there anymore to guard that gate for us. And we have people in charge now that are clearly socialist uh, slash Marxists in their attitudes and ideologies. In the last couple of weeks, we also talked about how some of that comes about by people's education and their thinking, what is in their head, what they're propagandized with um, as being acceptable becomes part of their attitude. The mantra that we heard about education Uh, The other week was that how we educate our kids and what we educate our kids with and will mean how we govern ourselves a generation ahead. And that's sort of what we're experiencing right now. We're experiencing a generation of millennials, of leaders in Congress, of leaders in the Democratic Party in particular that have been steeped in this whole idea of bigger and bigger government is the solution rather than, as Ronald Reagan said, government is not the solution It's the problem. So I want to talk today with one of the great conservative minds, and that's uh, Professor um, Friedman. I think that if we listen to Professor Friedman, that we will get a different perspective. His message is timeless. Uh, Milton Friedman has been around for a long time as a professor of economics at the uh, University of Chicago. He passed away a number of years ago, but his message is very timely. And so I wanted to take one of his YouTube presentations and do like I've done in previous weeks, make some commentary about it, ask some questions that his speeches are responsive to, and then give some of my own commentary and thoughts about his presentation as we go along. So if you'll hang with me, I think you'll find it very entertaining, very enlightening, and very understanding of the history that many of us may have missed in school because it just wasn't taught. So, I want to talk today uh, with Milton Freeman in this kind of a dialogue and say, Milton, what do you want to talk about today? What do you want our audience to know about? What are the topics that you're willing to discuss
2: uh, during this next hour? I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. As you are all aware, there there has been a drastic shift in public attitudes and public opinions in the past 50 years or so with respect to the role of the individual on the one hand and the role of government and collective institutions on the other. There has been a shift in the philosophy and attitudes of the public from a belief in individual responsibility, from a belief in a society in which the role of government was as an umpire, to a belief in a society in which the emphasis is on social responsibility and the role of government as big brother and protector of the individual. As always, when such shifts arise in public opinion, They are largely produced and reinforced by the development of myths about prior experience. Someone once wrote, and I'm not sure who it was, that a myth is like an air mattress. There's nothing in it, but it's wonderfully comfortable. And deflation causes an uncomfortable jolt. Well, my purpose today is to give you that jolt. When myths get established and are adopted, they tend to be so strongly held, they tend to become so much a part of you, that when anyone comes along and differs with them and contradicts them, he risks automatically being dismissed as a crackpot. But I shall nonetheless take the risk of being dismissed as a crackpot because it seems to me so urgent. That we deflate these myths, recognize what the reality is, in order to be able to provide a basis for a change in our philosophy, a a reversal of the direction of our thought.
1: Professor Milton, I'm glad that you're willing to step forward and be called a crackpot. But, you know, in today's world, it's much worse than that. It's you're called a racist, a bigot, a homophobe a terrorist, a white supremacist, if you disagree with the other side. So where do we go if we don't change people's thinking and try to give them the truths, overcome the propaganda, the false myths that people have in their own minds and get them the truth and get them to believe the truths as a replacement for those false myths. There's such a big difference in the expectation of socialist young people and the reality of socialism as an example. What's gonna
2: happen if we don't change people's thinking? In my opinion, if we do not do so, if we continue on the road we have been going, if we continue to rely more and more on government and less and less on the individual, we are condemned to a future of tyranny and misery. And therefore, it seems to me essential for the future of this country that we recognize these myths for what they are and adjust our thinking to a correct perception of our present and our past. So, Professor Friedman, are you encouraged that
1: we can actually change people's minds by just telling them the truth?
2: I'm uh, uh, encouraged in this venture by another quotation, one which comes from a 19th century American humorist by the name of Josh Billings, who wrote, wrote somewhere... It ain't what people know that causes trouble. It's what they know that ain't so.
1: So tell us about some of these
2: myths that we may think
1: are real and we've got ingrained in our brains, but you claim are really false premises and a misunderstanding of reality.
2: I am going to try to cover five myths. The first of those myths is a robber baron myth. The myth that somehow or other in the 19th century there was an era of uh, rugged unrestrained individualism in which heartless monopoly capitalists exploited the poor unmercifully and ground them beneath their heels. The second myth I'm going to talk about is the Great Depression myth. The myth that the Great Depression from 1929 until the late 30s was produced by a failure of private enterprise. The third myth I want to talk about is the demand for government service myth. The myth that government has had to step in because of a failure of the private market and a great widespread demand for government services. The fourth myth I'm going to talk about, it's a free lunch myth. The myth that there is such a thing as a free lunch. And the final myth I want to talk about is a Robin Hood myth. The myth that somehow or other government operates by taking money from the rich and giving it to the poor.
1: Okay, now I think you've got the attention of this audience because we hear over and over today that the problem with Republican Party, with the control that they have, is that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So it's the same Robert baron myth that apparently we all have in the back of our heads from some crazy education or propaganda that we've heard over and over again, and we've come to believe it. So let's delve into this first issue that you have, the robber baron myth, and tell us why it's a myth.
2: Let me start with the first of those myths, the robber baron myth. The myth that in the 19th century was a period in which the rich became richer and the poor poorer. That it was a century in which you had a conflict between Wall Street and the working men. That it was a period in which particularly the farmers of the Middle West were being ground beneath the rapacious activities of the Wall Street financiers in which there was widespread farm distress and misery. That was a myth. What was the reality? The reality is that there is almost no period in human history which saw as rapid and widespread an increase in the well-being of the ordinary man as the 19th century. That was a period when millions of people from all over the world streamed to these shores. They came here with empty hands in the hope and the belief that they could make a better life for themselves and their children, and they succeeded. uh, My parents came here in the 1890s from a part of Europe, which is today part of the Soviet Union, although at that time it was part of Hungary. Now, do you suppose those people kept coming to these shores in order to be exploited? Do you think they came here to be ground under the heels of rapacious monopoly capitalists? Not a bit of it. A few people might have been led here under misapprehension. You conceivably could have had an initial inflow of people who thought they were going to improve their lot and ended up being worse off. But you would not have had a continuing inflow. They would not have sent back to the old country for their relatives and friends. You would not have had a flow of millions upon millions, year after year. And, of course, they were not exploited. They were not ground under the heel. They got jobs. They spread out west, to the middle west, to the far west, to where we are now. And they made of what was a desolate country, a a country that was prosperous and green and productive, and improved their own lot.
1: Professor, you've given us a lot to think about, what some might call our stinking thinking. We've got to change and understand better. This is such an important area, this robber baron myth that I think many people have because of the training and education we've had in the past. I want to take a quick break right now. I want to come back and I want to continue on this very first myth that you're trying to debunk because it is such an important one. So. Our audience will just stay with us for a few minutes. We'll be right back with Professor Milton Friedman.
0: Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran.
1: Welcome back to America's Web Radio and Healthcare Insight. Today, we're taking a presentation by Professor Milton Friedman, and we're slicing and dicing it into its critical pieces for this audience to understand that there are certain ways you and I, even as conservatives, uh, may be thinking and having the back of our minds, certain myths, certain misunderstandings of history and ideology that... The other side uses as an argument against expanding government, and I want you to hear and listen to Dr. Milton Friedman as he talks about myths that are ingrained in our minds that are not true, and so right now we're talking about myth number one, what he calls the robber baron myth, where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, and we have that from a historical perspective that we've been told is true, and he's telling us examples of how it's not true, in fact the opposite is true. So I want him to continue this discussion that we had in our first segment. And in particular, talk about the farmers back then, because they were individuals out there growing their crops, selling their crops, and you had these so-called robber barons, Wall Street types that might be taking advantage of them. But let's find out what the reality is about the agricultural changes that were going on during that period of time. Uh, Professor Friedman...
2: Give us some of your insights. With respect to agriculture in particular, that was a period when the number of farmers increased. It was a period when the price of farmland rose. Now, of course, then as now, every farmer would have liked it better if he had done still better. What happened then, of course, was that the spread of farms, increasing productivity, the development of machinery, the bringing under the plow of productive land led to a great increase in production, which led to a decline in the prices of farm products. So it's true, the prices of farm products went down. But that was a sign of success. It was not a sign of failure. And the evidence that it was a sign of success was a rise in the price of farm land. After all, if this decline in the price of products had been a sign of failure, if it had been an indication that the farmer was being ground under the heel of Wall Street, why would people have been willing to pay higher and higher prices for the land from which those crops were produced? So the actual story is one of a great growth of productivity in agriculture, a great development of agriculture in this country.
1: Okay, let me jump in here because you make a good case that the average man coming to this country with nothing, was able to find jobs and to advance the well-being of his family. You've made the case that farmers were able to expand uh, their land, their crops, even though the prices were going down. They were doing well, that the value of land was going up. But we know at that time that there were some individuals with great wealth that were created, and they're identified as the robber barons, if you will, the difference between the rich getting richer and the poor getting poor. Well, the rich did get richer. I think the myth is that the poor didn't always get poor, that the poor actually became uh, middle class and supported their families. But tell us a little bit more about what those wealthy individuals did, that they weren't just robbing from others as we might expect, but that they actually did something with their accumulated wealth.
2: Let me call to your attention that the 19th century, the period when We came the closest we've ever come to pure, unrestrained individualism, a period when government spending, the spending of the federal government in Washington, amounted to less than 3% of the national income, when essentially you had no restrictions on immigration and few restrictions on economic activity. Let me point out that that was also the period of the greatest flowering of charitable activity in the United States. That was a period when you had the establishment of so many independent private schools and colleges around the country. It was a period when the private, non-profit, Alamos-Neri hospitals grew and sprouted in every city in the land. It was a period of the Carnegie Libraries. It was a period of the founding of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. You name it, and you will find that the charitable alamosnery activities date back to the period of the 19th century.
1: Professor Friedman, you are a great interview. I ask you a simple question, and you give us so much detail and background that I think our audience is really learning uh, the value of your thinking. Why don't you just kind of wrap up this whole idea of the robber baron myth and how deeply
2: ingrained it is in our own thinking? So the robber baron myth is a myth, one that should be deflated. It gets its appeal from a common fallacy, from the fallacy that one man's gain must be another man's loss. Of course, it is true that many men became wealthy during that period. There were robber barons. There always are robber barons. People are people. Some are good, some are bad, some are in between, and of course, some people did try to mistreat other people. That is part of the course of history, unfortunately. But the main part of the story is that the process whereby some people became wealthy was also the process which opened up the country and provided opportunities for millions of other people to have a modest competence to be able to improve their own lives. It was the robber barons who, who were instrumental in building the railroads that joined the country together, who were instrumental in developing the industries of this country, and in thereby providing the opportunities for the ordinary man to improve his lot on life. Everybody can benefit. You can have some people become wealthy, not at the expense of other people, but by enabling other people to become wealthy.
1: Okay, so we've always had robber barons. There's good apples, there's bad apples. And our myths are usually built around the bad apples that are played up in the media and the history. Uh, But you pointed out how the accumulated wealth of many created uh, nonprofit organizations that are with us now more than 100 years later. But this whole idea of robber baron is still with us. We have many people that are making absolute fortunes in this country becoming enormously wealthy, multi, multi, what some call centenary billionaires, more than a hundred billion dollars in their own wealth. We're gonna have a trillion dollar wealth accumulation at some point, but how is that different today than it was back in the period that you're talking about? Because it's causing great concern today. So give us a little bit of a perspective you're thinking on today's robber barons if you will versus the robber barons of old we had robber barons then and we
2: have robber barons today but there's a big difference between the robber barons then and the robber barons today the robber barons then primarily could get their money only if people freely gave it to them they got their money by selling a service and nobody had to buy it and if people bought it, it was because it was a better service than it was before. The robber barons today are in large part able to get their money by sending a policeman to take the money out of your pocket. Now, that's a figurative expression, not a literal expression. But how do you become a wealthy today? By getting government assistance. To mention only one very famous example, by getting government to assign you some... TV licenses, or by getting any one of a large variety of other, uh, of other sources of government support. If you look at where modern wealth comes from, it almost always comes from political influence, which enables you to get benefits at the expense of the public at large. Now, that is a zero-sum game. When the money is transferred from some to others through force and coercion in the taxpayer, then it need not be that the one man's benefit is also the other man's benefit. Then it can and often is that both parties, uh, that the party who gains gains at the expense of the party who pays. So robber barons will always be with us. The crucial question is whether we have a form of economic organization in which one robber baron keeps the other robber baron in check, or whether we have a form of economic and political organization in which one robber baron can help the other robber baron at the expense of the public.
1: Okay, well, you've made your strong case about the robber baron myth and what the real truth is, and that's what we're seeking in this presentation and this series that I've tried to put together on, um, on healthcare insight about the general economy and our ideology, trying to find the truth about things that have happened, about the truth of our history. So let's now turn to your second point, the Great Depression myth. Tell us about what you mean by the Great Depression myth.
2: I want to turn to the second of these myths, the Great Depression myth. There is hardly any view that is more widespread than the view that somehow or other the Great Depression was produced by a failure of private business. That view is held not only by those who are in favor of greater role of government. It is held by almost everybody. that Nine out of ten of them would say, well, of course the Great Depression was a failure of private business. It was due to an overextension, over-speculation in the 1920s, or it was due to an excessive concentration of wealth in the hands of the wealthy at the expense of the poor in the 1920s, or it was due to speculative investment abroad, or what?" But it was a failure of private business, and government had to step in in order to rescue private business from its own failure. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The Great Depression was produced by a failure of government, by a failure of monetary policy. It was produced by a failure of the Federal Reserve System to act in accordance with the intentions of those who established it. It was produced by a failure of the Federal Reserve System despite the presence of knowledge on the part of many of the people in the system about the right course of action. It's interesting to speculate for a moment about why this myth is so widespread. The answer is really very simple in this case. Private enterprise has no press agents. The free market has no press agents. The government has a great many press agents. The Federal Reserve has a great many press agents. And the Federal Reserve, of course, would never admit, never proclaim, that it produced the Great Depression. On the contrary, we're talking about the way institutions operate. You and I are the same as all the rest of us. We're all the same. The hardest thing in the world is for anybody to admit that he made a mistake. If any one of us makes a mistake, we can always find somebody else to blame. And if you read, as I have for my sins had to read, the annual reports of the Federal Reserve System over a 50-year period, there's only one element of humor that lightens that task, And that is the cyclical fluctuation in the powers of the Federal Reserve. In a good year, when things are good, when the economy is booming, You will read that the Federal Reserve, by its wise policy, by its efficacious management of money, has produced this fine situation. However, let things get bad, and all of a sudden the tone of the annual report is different. Then you discover that despite the best efforts of the Federal Reserve, outside forces combine to produce difficulties.
1: Okay, you have pretty much killed that myth as well, Professor Friedman. Let's take a quick break, and we're going to come back in the next segment and continue with this debunking of the myths and trying to change people's understanding of our own history.
2: Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor Show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor Show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor Show, only right here on America's Web Radio.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. And if you followed the uh, first two segments uh, this week, we are talking to Professor Milton Friedman. Uh, He's talking about a number of myths and thinking that we all have in our heads that we have been propagandized about. And he's going through each of these myths. The first one was the robber baron myth. The second was the Great Depression myth. And now he's gonna talk about something that is closely related to the second one. The third one is demand for government and services. The idea that the government has to do certain things because the private market does not. So um, Professor Friedman, um, give us your thoughts on this third myth.
2: Let me turn to the third of the myths I wanna cover. This is a myth closely related to the Great Depression myth. It is a myth that somehow or other, the private market has failed to provide certain important services. And the government has had to step in in response to an overwhelming public demand in order to provide those services. The reality is very different. The reality is that if you look at every program that the government has adopted in the direction of extending its scope... It took an enormous propaganda campaign by special propaganda groups to get those measures passed. There was no underlying public demand for those measures. On the contrary, the demand had to be created. It had to be developed. It had to be produced. And it was created, it was developed, it was produced by people who sincerely, I'm not questioning their sincerity, who sincerely wanted to see an expansion in the scope of government.
1: Professor Friedman, I don't think many people would disagree with this continuous expansion of government with propaganda, with ideas that kind of um, are self-supporting of the government bureaucracy and those people who want to see bigger government, um, and the inefficiency of those programs relative to what might be alternatives in the free market. But can you give us a couple of historical examples where the government stepped in, where there was no great um, public outcry for those programs to exist, but yet we think there is, and that's part of the myth. We think that that history that we've been taught is actually true, that the government had to do certain programs, certain major programs, like, um, like uh, Medicare, uh, like uh, Social Security. So give us some thoughts on uh, some of the examples that uh, you would throw out where the government stepped in, where there was no real demand.
2: Let me take the example, which today is the greatest, uh, greatest uh, sacred cow of them all, social security. Was there an overwhelming demand for social security in the 1930s when the law was adopted? Far from it. There was no public demand for it. It had to be sold. How was it sold? By the slickest devices of Madison Avenue, by imaginative packaging and deceptive labeling. Social Security was sold as an insurance scheme. It is not an insurance scheme. There is very little relationship to the amount of money any one individual pays and the amount of money he is entitled to receive. Social Security is a combination of a bad tax system with a bad way of distributing welfare. Note the misleading language. The Social Security system consistently refers to the taxes you pay as a contribution. Now tell me, do you regard taxes as contribution? The word contribution denotes voluntary arrangements. If you buy an insurance program, you are contributing freely. If you contribute to the United Way freely, you're contributing freely. But if you pay taxes on your wages as a condition of being employed, that's a tax, it's not a contribution. Again, it always refers to the payments people get as benefits. They are not benefits, they are subsidies. What you have is a system of subsidizing people on the one hand and of taxing it. What about the claim that it's insurance, that there's a relationship between the two? Well, there is a minor relationship. It is true that on the whole, those people who pay more will receive more. Other things the same. But every student of the subject has pointed out that the relationship is very small, that most payments are independent of most receipts. Moreover, what you really have is not a system under which people are providing for their own security, as a social security system will say it, as they describe it. In their pamphlets, they describe it as a way in which 90% of American workers are providing for their own future. That's nonsense. What people today are doing is paying taxes today to pay the subsidies to the people who are receiving benefits today. What you have is a system of taxing the young at any point in time to subsidize the old. I'm discussing whether Social Security was a response to a broad-scale public demand or whether it had to be sold to the people by the worst devices of Madison Avenue. And the answer is it clearly was the latter.
1: They make a pretty compelling case against the um, Social Security system being adopted because of some great public demand, because it had to be sold. If it was such a great public demand, then there wouldn't have been that need for changing the language, to distorting the words and their meanings in order to implement the program. It was something that people of uh, potentially good uh, intentions um, were trying to promote to help some people who – couldn't wouldn't set money aside to help with their own retirement and that created a burden on others so i know you're speaking from a historical perspective and some of your examples have some age on them. but do you have another example or two that this audience um uh, could understand let me
2: take another more recent movement consider the imposition on you and me and on our automobiles of all sorts of safety equipment So-called safety equipment. Nothing to prevent us individually from buying it. But now we are required to buy it by government. Why? Was there a great public demand? Not at all. There was a man named Ralph Nader. Now, maybe he arose in response to a public demand. But if so, it was a public demand for entertainment, not for safety. But Ralph Nader launched a major propaganda campaign. And as a result of this propaganda campaign, as a result of a great selling effort, also characterized by misrepresentation. Also, as you know, uh, his original weapon was a book, uh, Unsafe at Any Price, which damned the Corvair as being an unsafe and a knowingly unsafe car. Later studies have demonstrated that his claim was not justified. But that did not prevent it from having its effect. It did not prevent it from adopting it. But the extent to which this did not result from a great public clamor can be shown by what has happened whenever the the agency that was established to administer auto safety regulations has overstepped its bounds. You will recall that a few years ago, it tried to impose the requirement of an interlock, that no car could be started unless the seat belts were fastened. And that produced such a great public outcry that Congress stepped in and it had to be uh, rescinded.
1: What about government's involvement in health care, health insurance? I know that we currently have Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, But that's not the real goal. The real goal is national health reform to create a single-payer system. So tell us about that version of national health reform.
2: The drive for national health insurance. Is there a widespread drive for national health insurance? Not so you can notice it. Indeed. The proponents of it have been trying to get it passed year after year. So-called national health insurance were passed, it would bear as little relationship to insurance as Social Security does. It's not a program for national health insurance at all. It's a program for socialized medicine. It's a program for making physicians government employees. It's a program for creating long waiting lines and inferior medical service. But that isn't the way it's labeled. But the pressure for it is having to be created and built up by propaganda.
1: Well, make your point on Obamacare, the way it was passed, it was passed basically by the House of Representatives just agreeing to language that the Senate had because they couldn't change language because they wouldn't have the votes to actually get it passed on a second round after Senator Ted Kennedy passed away. And they used all the kind of propaganda that you're talking about to get this thing passed. And they didn't do it with the outcry of the American people to do it. They did it because some politicians wanted more and more government takeover. That's why the Democrats had to do it in the dark of night on Christmas Eve and do it against the elected officials will at the time by just carrying over the passage of the bill before Senator Kennedy's death. And the people of Massachusetts voted in a Republican replace senator Kennedy because they didn't want national health care they thought they could stop it but the politicians in washington found a way around that now let's get into the fourth of your myths which all these are kind of related and which you call the free lunch myth tell us about the free lunch myth professor friedman
2: let me turn to the to the fourth of my myths the free lunch myth The belief that somehow or other government can spend money at nobody's expense. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of a wonderful description of government that was made by a French economist by the name of Frédéric Bastiat about 150 years ago. He said, government is that fiction whereby everybody believes that he can live at the expense of everybody else. And that is the free lunch myth, the myth that somehow or other government can provide goods and services, can spend money at nobody's expense.
1: What you're saying, Professor Friedman, is that it is so particular, so timely to today's world under the Biden administration and the proposed tax increases he's talking about, Would you give us some perspective on the corporate and the printing of money that this administration is pursuing? Now, the particular
2: form which that myth takes is very specific. It has two parts. One part is a belief that somehow or other you can tax business without consumers or workers or individuals paying for it. Somehow business is a big source a big cornucopia out there that can be taxed at no cost. And the other way a form the myth takes is that you can create money at no cost. That if you turn the printing press, if you produce those greenbacks, that will enable people to become richer with nobody becoming poorer. Well, let me look at first problem. Can you tax business? What's business? There's no business to be taxed. There are people... Only people can pay taxes. Can I tax this floor? Can I tax the building? The building can't pay taxes. Only people can pay taxes. So when you talk about a tax on business, it has to be paid by somebody. Either it's paid by the stockholder, or it's paid by the customer, or it's paid by the worker.
1: Well, unfortunately, we need to take a quick break. Your message is so timely to what we're talking about in this country around taxing of corporations, raising that corporate income tax, which we lowered a while back to be more competitive, knowing that somebody had to pay that and it's not corporations that individuals and citizens and buyers of the products ultimately pay for that. But let's take a quick break and we're going to delve into this a little bit more with Professor Friedman when we come back for our last segment this week. Welcome back to America's Web Radio and Healthcare Insight. Let's continue with this discussion with Professor Milton Friedman on his thinking about the five myths that seem to be in most of our minds. If you listen to them, it's very insightful of things that we almost presume to be true that really aren't true. And we're talking about the fourth myth now, the free lunch, that somehow everything can be done and it's not going to cost anybody whether it's taxing corporations or other ways that the government just prints money so dr friedman give us some more insights on this idea of the free lunch there's no
2: santa claus no tooth fairy that's going to provide a source by which the government can spend money that doesn't come from somebody somebody has to pay And yet, over and over again, you hear the claim: "Oh, we cannot; we must not increase taxes on individuals. We'll increase taxes on business." In connection with the current discussion of social security, this fiction arises. There is a fiction that the social security tax is half on the individual and half on the employer. That's nonsense. That's bookkeeping. That's not economics. That's not reality. The part that the employer pays is part of his wage cost. If an employer considers whether it's worth his while to hire an additional worker, he has to consider as part of his cost not only what he pays to the worker, but also the extra taxes he will have to pay to the government. It makes no difference to the employer at all if he pays the worker a bigger check and the worker pays a larger part of that directly to the government, or he pays the worker a smaller check but in addition has to send a check to Washington. What matters to him is the total number of dollars it costs him to hire an additional person. So the fact is, the logic is, the reason is that the tax, on the so-called tax on the employer is paid by the employee. Now, this has always been clear from uh, economic reasoning, general economic reasoning, but it has also been subjected to empirical tests. And a book even from that height uh, height, uh, from that uh, temple of belief in greater and bigger government, the Brookings Institution in Washington, published a couple of years ago, demonstrated empirically that the tax on the employer was really paid by the employee, that it was shifted to the employee, and it can't be any other way, as you will see if you think about it. So business doesn't pay that tax. But again, If you look at the taxing corporate profits, the distinction you have to draw is between who writes the check and who fundamentally bears the cost. It may well be that an official of a corporation writes the check for the tax on profits, so-called profits. He writes the check, but who pays it? He doesn't pay it. Here is a poor fellow who may be earning a, a, a modest competence. He may be writing a check for $10 million. That isn't coming out of his hide. Where's that $10 million coming from? It has to come from the proceeds of the goods and services which the enterprise sells. And that $10 million is $10 million less available either for cutting prices or for paying out dividends or for paying wages and salaries. Professor Friedman, if we take
1: that Example, and I'm not saying it's not the proper economics or the way to sell taxes, but if we were to take that premise that corporations don't pay taxes, wouldn't the logical conclusion be that the corporate tax rate should be zero?
2: The tax is borne by people. And for this reason, I must say I have always myself been strongly in favor of eliminating altogether the tax on corporations. So it's open and above board that you are taxing people and that you do not conceal that fact by appearing to tax corporations.
1: Well, I think many conservatives might actually agree with you in theory, but they have, instead of thinking that the corporate tax rate should be zero, they simply look at the corporation as another way of collecting the taxes that they really don't want to go and ask the individuals about. So your idea of misrepresentation, distortion, of getting people to pay things that they don't really fully understand that they're paying for is true. And both Republicans and Democrats have at least used the corporate tax as a way of collecting additional taxes from an individual. Okay, so let's turn to the second part of that free lunch that you've described before, and that is of government just printing out money as if it's free and doesn't have an impact on anybody's um, uh, livelihood under taxes, of the value of the goods and services that they have, of the things that they buy. Somebody is ultimately paying for that opening up of the printer presses, which is what we're seeing today in the Biden administration with $6 trillion of proposed spending. Tell us about that that's
2: not really a free lunch either. Can you print money at no cost? It's very cheap to turn out those pieces of paper. But does that get society something for nothing? Not at all. It's simply a different form of taxation. If you print money, people have more money to spend. If they spend if they spend more money on the same amount of goods, prices go up. And in effect... Everybody is paying a tax through inflation. Once again, it's only a form of taxation. Unfortunately,
1: we saw that after all the expenditures in the 1960s around the Vietnam War and the Great Society programs. That took a few years, but by the early 1970s, we had enormous inflation. And under Jimmy Carter in the late 70s, we had 25% interest rates and 12% inflation. It took a long while Uh, for President Reagan to sort of wring that out of the system. And today we're having the same issues around the potential for inflation with $6 trillion of spending after we spent a couple of trillion dollars under President uh, Trump to get out of this coronavirus um, business and lifestyle change that we had to suffer through. I remember in my own economics, I was told that inflation was developed in two separate ways one we had a shortage of goods manufacturing was down the supply chains were disrupted Uh, oil was so high that products weren't being produced and we had the same amount of money going after fewer goods and so that same amount of money after fewer goods meant that the goods were more valuable and created an inflationary environment the second was that you have a lot more money in the system chasing after the same goods because you have more money in the system, it creates inflation that people are willing to pay more for those uh, uh, same amount of goods you would otherwise have. In today's world, it looks like a tsunami, a perfect storm, where you have a supply chain disruption from the coronavirus. You had people who weren't able to manufacture goods that most of us buy. You have you um, know, four or five month wait on a piece of furniture. If you try to order one today, you have lumber costs going up 80 to 100 percent. You uh, you can't buy the things that you would normally buy in the store because they weren't being produced during the economic shutdown. So we now have both the worst situation of what economics taught me in school. We have a limited supply supply and we have a lot more money in the system. It's gotta create inflation at some point in time. And the real question is how long will it take to generate? So let's move on in the time we have left as this hour is wrapping up. Time goes by fast when there's sort of interesting stuff going on and you're giving us such great wisdom. And that last myth is what you call the Robin Hood myth. Tell us about the Robin Hood myth.
2: Let me turn to my final myth because it is in some ways the most pervasive, the most dangerous, and the most deep-seated. That is a Robin Hood myth. The myth that government has benefited the poor at the expense of the rich. That's the myth. That's the, those are the terms on which many a governmental program is sold. What is the reality? The reality has been described in an article in the Journal of Law and Economics by my colleague George Stigler under the title of Director's Law. And Director is the name of Aaron Director who was a professor at the University of Chicago Law School. Director's Law is that almost invariably government programs benefit the middle income class at the expense of the very poor and the very rich. Now let me illustrate it in reality, in, in, in the real world. One of my favorite examples is state finance of higher education. This is always sold on the ground of providing opportunities to everybody in the society to get an education. But what are the facts? I doubt that there is any program financed by government in the United States which is as regressive in its impact and its financial impact as the financing of higher schooling. Who are the people who go to school? Mostly people who come from middle, upper middle, or lower middle income class families. If there are a few among you who come from lower income families, you are going to be among the middle and upper income classes. You are the richer among the poor. They are the people who go to school. They are the people who get the benefit from it. Your training here will enable you to get higher incomes than you otherwise could. Who pays for it? Well, you pay for it and your family and friends pay for it, not through tuition. I'm told your tuition covers about 15% of the cost of your schooling. The taxpayers pay for it, including the people who don't go to school. Some years ago, there was a study made for the state of California which showed that 50% of the students at state-supported institutions of higher education came from the top 25% of the income class, and 5% came from the bottom 25% of the income class. This is a program. When I talk in California and want to be demagogic, I say it's a program to impose taxes on the people in Watts to send the children from Beverly Hills to college. There's a strong case to be made that everybody who wants to go to university should have an opportunity to do so, provided he's willing to pay for it. Not necessarily right now. It's highly desirable to have arrangements under which he can borrow now to pay it back later out of a higher income that his education will make possible. But there is no justification for imposing taxes on lower-income people to finance the schooling of people who are or will be in the higher income groups. And yet, how much political movement is there to impose full cost tuition on colleges? There is nobody who would have a ghost of a chance of being elected to a legislature or to the state house on that program. It's the hardest thing in the world, legislatively, to get higher tuitions imposed. Why? because a middle class looks after itself, because of director's law. Now, what's true for higher education is true in every other area. I come to my conclusion that if we are going to look forward to the future, to an end of this reduction in our freedom and the growth in centralized government, I think we must begin to dismantle these myths, which are so widely accepted by people, which have become an unthinking part of their philosophy and of their beliefs. And I hope that in the course of this hour, I have deflated your air mattress and given you an uncomfortable jolt. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Professor Friedman. And if the audience out there has enjoyed this presentation, please join us again next week as we continue to delve into The truths about our economy, our ideology, our history, to lay the foundation for a free market system, which ultimately will lead us back to an in-depth, practical, possible discussion on health insurance. That's why we've taken this side road and talk about our economy, our politics, and the market, and some of the myths and falsehoods that many of us are living under and that we have been taught. So join us again next week on America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman signing off for Healthcare Insight.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.